Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Jeannie Barnes, who is a professor of the practice Impact Investment and Sustainable Finance at the Keenan Flagler Business School at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Jeannie is a former leader in regional community development for the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. In her previous role, she provided leadership for strategic stakeholder collaboration and community level solutions, focusing on low and moderate income and underserved communities in support of the Federal Reserve System's community development function. Welcome, Jeannie. Thank you. Great to be here with you. Uh, you are involved in a project at the Kenan Charitable Trust on whole community health. Uh, and you say that the consequences of historical policies and practices have produced and perpetuated socioeconomic inequities. Entrenched disparities do not exist in isolation and cannot be solved piecemeal. Instead, a more integrated and sustainable approach is required. Uh, could you uh, describe a bit uh, what you mean by whole community health? Yes, absolutely. So whole community health is really based on an understanding of the social determinants of health, um, which really looks at health outcomes and health behaviors but all of the inputs that go into those determinations. So environmental justice issues, issues with safe housing, issues with public safety in general, uh, individuals, financial stability, all of those various factors that you think of in terms of quality of life that together determine what may happen with someone as far as their health outcome. So that's how we typically describe whole community health. Okay, so if you think about this sort of a, a system, uh, the, the output that you're measuring is the health outcome. So this is uh, essentially uh, quality of life, um, quality of life years that, that an individual gets. And then into the into the box goes variety of attributes, right? Uh, 
Yes. Okay. Okay. And and those attributes span uh, many many different things: um, uh, education, access mm-hmm. to nutrition. Uh, what are the what are the primary attributes that go into it? Um, well, so generally, a, a good place for your listeners to take a look at this would be the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. They actually do a ranking by each county in the United States, looking at those behaviors and those outcomes. And they score them based on these other factors. So they look at median family income uh, as an input into that system. They look at what's the rate of home ownership versus rental? What's the quality of the affordable and workforce housing? Um, is there nearby access to nutritious food or is it a food desert? Um, are there environmental hazards with air or water quality um, in the area? And it just goes down the list and they look at the county and they uh, calculate uh, what it looks like within those census blocks. And then they give a rating to the county as a whole. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. So, um it's so you know we always talk about how much healthcare is costing us. So uh, I think the GDP is in the range of twenty trillion. Uh, healthcare expenses in the U.S. is reaching approximately four trillion, so about twenty percent of the GDP. Uh, but what is not really thought through, I think, is um, healthcare costs could be sort of a symptom <laughs> of an underlying disease, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so we are yes, because we, right. yeah, because we see in these communities where they don't have nearby access to a healthcare facility, or they don't have the broadband capacity to be able to gain that access to a healthcare facility. So they may have underlying conditions that go untreated. Um, they may not have access to food, and they may have an underlying health condition that could be improved. Um, if they had access to better food. So clearly these factors, you know, having a job, having the financial capability, living in that safe housing, the community that's safe, are they isolated? You know, we know that when older people are isolated and and potentially even younger people now with what's going on with um, the pandemic, that that isolation can contribute to health conditions equal to smoking a pack of cigarettes. So if we look at all of those factors and we could improve those factors, then we could improve the health outcomes for individuals. And as you said, potentially save quite a bit of money on the healthcare end. Yeah. And, you know, the other issue we have is we seem to treat uh, physical health and mental health in completely disconnected silos. And this is true for the providers Uh, Obviously, there are different specializations there, but it's also true for payers uh, who seem not to understand how mental health and physical health are so intimately connected. Um, I I think this is much well appreciated when you go into community health in a more holistic fashion, right? Absolutely. Um, One of the things that I think the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill does well is through the Keenan Charitable Trust generosity, they started looking at interprofessional health education. And instead of you, a patient in a healthcare facility and being seen independently by different practitioners in the health fields, they're working to bring those fields together. 
so that you're seen as a collective and you have the benefit of the mental health professional, the physical health professional, the pharmacist, the nurse, so that that is, they're working as a team um, to treat the patients instead of, you know, a revolving door of the different professions coming in and out and not collaborating. So that's, that's one element. And then what we did was we wanted to bring interprofessional students from an even broader range together. Um, so we brought in business and law because so many of these other socioeconomic issues could be addressed by attorneys and business professionals. So we wanted to bring them into the loop with the health professionals so that everyone's looking at the whole picture of someone's health, not just the health care, but all of the inputs that go into what they may need on the healthcare side. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, and technology has a major role to play here. You know, it was heartbreaking to see. I saw a, a story and a picture that, you know, two kids doing their homework by a fast food place uh, to get the Wi-Fi. Uh, and, you know, you don't typically expect to see uh, these types of things in a developed country. Um, and so we seem to be falling behind in, you know, even sort of tactical interventions. Uh, information uh, is really the key now, right? If you don't have access to information, you're going to be left behind regardless of uh, other attributes that we can focus on. Absolutely. I mean, it, it drills down to even libraries. If you look at rural areas in our country, a library may be the size of a single family home. It may, it may be less than 2000 square feet mm -hmm. staffed by one person. And they may not even have the catalog of information available in that rural area that you might find in a larger urban library, let alone the broadband access. And then in terms of the broadband access, the country is just uh, a maze of federal, state and local regulations. Mm -hmm. Um, so you have to wade your way through the regulations. And then if you can get the access to someone's door, which is the ultimate goal, um, you have to make sure that it's the right access that enables them to use the services they need. So your broadband won't be any good if it's not fast enough for telehealth um, during a pandemic or the delivery of educational services. So we really have to be coordinated as to how we work through that regulatory process right. and all of the maze of laws, which again was the reason we wanted to bring business students and law school students in because a lot of this is based on ordinances, regs and laws. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that, um, you know, there were some attempts a few years ago to make internet, you know, sort of non-terrestrial and universal. Um, Google had a program based on balloons in, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, I don't know the status of any of those programs. I think what we have is right now sort of a patch, a patchwork, I should say, of uh, ISPs and uh, internet provision with varying speeds. Uh, and like you say, uh, some of them are not really capable of uh, delivering telehealth and other type of information. So it, it seems to me this is this is sort of a national problem, right? Not just uh, not just specific areas. Yeah, it's absolutely a national problem that needs a national solution, just like 
you know, people in rural areas didn't have access to electricity. And we addressed that as a country to make sure that we had a department that delivered electric service to everyone. Um, this is very much the, the same issue. And we need to look at it that way. And, and the federal government is making incredible investment in the infrastructure through several different departments and agencies. And then, you know, more recently, uh, the FCC made a commitment of around $22 billion, um, again, to add on to that infrastructure. Um, and there's a bill pending in Congress around the formulas for each state for that. So we're, we're making huge investments in the infrastructure, but it still comes down to who's going to build the infrastructure. And then at the state and local level, do you have barriers in the way? What type of structure do you need to deploy that to, to get the speed people need? So unfortunately, it's just very a very, very slow process. And when something like a pandemic comes along, it, it doesn't speed that process up. Um, and so we're, we're really as a country just wading through that issue. Yeah, yeah. You know, I always felt that, you know, we have sort of uh, information-based segregation now. You know, it used to be other attributes, but information has become a very important attribute in, in segregation. And unless, you know, like you say, unless some kind of national plan to do that, um, we, we won't be able to solve that problem. I want to jump into, you have a pilot project going on in, in uh, yeah, this is in North Carolina, right? Robeson and Edgecombe counties. You want to talk, talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so that's, um, that's this whole community health process. What we did was we, um, the Keenan Charitable Trust wanted to look at uh, system change, which is longer term change, how you really address the root of issues that are holding people and communities back, um, which is to be applauded because so many philanthropies just give grants that might sustain a community or an entity for a short period of time. So this is much more about investing in the system change. So what we did was we looked at North Carolina. We have 100 counties in North Carolina. And we looked at the patterns of in-migration, out-migration, uh, death versus births, um, pulled together you know, poverty data per capita income. And we really have about 33 to 36 counties that have not been the recipient of in-migration. Mm. Some areas in North Carolina receive 200 people daily from other areas moving in. Mm. Uh, but we have a lot of counties that aren't recipients of that. They're they have more people leaving than coming in and they have more people dying than being born. So they're really dying counties. And along with that goes tax burden, uh, costs of uh, infrastructure like water and sewer with a declining population. So we see higher poverty levels and um, we see issues with accessing transportation to get to jobs. So among those counties, we chose two. And we looked at their rankings at that Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Rankings. And both Robison and Edgecombe rank at the bottom of our 100 counties for those um, health rankings. They're 97 and 100. Yeah. Um, Edgecombe is a majority minority uh, county. And Robison is a tri-racial county with a large uh, Lumbee Nation population, the largest tribal nation that's not federally, fully federally recognized in the country. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the two counties that 
we decided to focus on. And we started this past summer with a group of 16 student interns representing medicine, pharmacy, public health, law, and business. And they started doing a, a deep dive to come up with a priority of system change mechanisms that we could focus on for the next three years. Yeah, so th- so these two counties are uh, geographically quite uh, quite apart. Um, Edgecombe, uh, northeast of Raleigh, and then uh, uh, Robeson, southwest of Raleigh. So, but but they have some common characteristics, right? So, you know, I was looking at some of the statistics. Um, so, Edgecombe lost. Uh, 4,500 uh, residents in uh, in the 2010-2018 uh, time period, and, and similarly for the other county. And so th- these are huge losses in terms of people moving out of the county. Are they are they moving toward the city? But they said what's happening. Um, yes. Yeah, so in so in both cases, people are moving to other larger cities nearby. Both Robison and Edgecombe are on the Interstate 95 corridor. Um, they both have a hub city. Uh, Edgecombe has Rocky Mount, North Carolina, and Robison has Lumberton, mm-hmm. North Carolina. Those are both um, on that Interstate 95 corridor. Um, but when people move from those areas, they're moving to the job center. So in Edgecombe, they might be moving towards Greenville, North Carolina, um, east of there, which is a larger city with a university and a hospital um, there. Uh, They could be moving to Raleigh, which is, uh, we also chose these counties because they're both about an hour and 20 minutes from Chapel Hill. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we we originally planned for the students to live there before the pandemic came (laughs) along. Um, And uh, Robison, they they are moving to um, Fayetteville, um, which is a larger city nearby, also a large military installation. So, and then Robison has a unique challenge also that there's UNC Pembroke there, which is our Native American um, institution, but they have um, a need for more student and faculty housing. So a lot of their students and faculty come in from other places and then leave at the end of the day. Yeah, and their racial... um... Uh, makeup is is different uh, these counties mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, as you say Robeson has a very high percentage of Native American uh, whereas Edgecombe doesn't uh, at all uh, but they they show similar uh, household median income uh, around thirty five thousand dollars which appears to be like seventy percent of North Carolina's average income right Correct. That's correct. They both share that. The home ownership's a little bit higher in Robison uh, than Edgecombe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so when you look at this program, the the whole community health uh, program and the model, you have uh, six um, interconnected pillars of opportunity. You say, and the first one is economic stability, including employment opportunities with living wages, and financial education. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So really, you know, what we mean by that is, are there jobs that pay living wages within those counties that can either attract people in in migration or employ the people that are located? So many times you have a business that is incentivized by the state or the local government to come into the community 
And the people who work there either come from other areas and they choose to live outside that area or the business comes in and then people come to work from another area and go back. So, for example, there's a health system in Edgecombe, but many of those doctors and employees of that health system live in, a, in another county that's nearby. So looking at the structure for how economic development's done and does it really benefit the local population? Does the workforce training, is it compatible with the types of businesses that they're trying to recruit? Um, and then is there an element of homegrown business taking place? Are there support systems uh, that support entrepreneurship in that area. And, and what would you consider living wages, Jeannie, in that area? Um, well, there's, uh, I mean, there's a pretty, what, what at a minimum, what we'd want to see is people clearly being paid at least $15 an yeah. hour, um, well above minimum wage. Um, there is a computation for both uh, places in terms of what they would need to make as well as the state as a whole. Um, and it is somewhat higher than that. Mm -hmm. um, so we'd like to see people be able to sustain themselves with well above minimum wage jobs. And, and so, you know, the argument um, economists often make, even though the data is very sparse around this, is that uh, as the required wages go up, uh, there will be less employment and businesses move out of the area. Uh, do you buy that argument or do you see alternatives that that could be deployed? Well, I would, um, I've, I've spent a lifetime working with economists and I've, <laughs> I've heard that argument. Yeah. Um, so I think what you have to do is you have to look at it in terms of a model of if, if that's true, but then you have the cost of health care and all of these other systems that we're talking about. Is it really less expensive? Mm -hmm. Um, to, to pay those wages if those businesses end up having to support um, the other end of that um, in terms of safety net support, et cetera. So, um, you know, I would argue that for the people living there, we have cities across the country that have addressed um, living wage jobs and have been able to do that. Certainly when you're in the process of trying to increase your in-migration, and the pandemic offers some opportunity for some of these smaller places to be able to attract um, people into the community. You know, maybe not so feasible, um, but it's not feasible to have a single mom with two children working three minimum wage jobs and having a lack of uh, child care. So, you know, our focus is really on the next generation. And what you find are that minority youth um, and children in both of these communities and many other are hit with this whammy of uh, lack of opportunity because some of these systems hold them back. And one of them is those, um, those living wage jobs. That's what causes people to migrate to those other areas. Yeah, and you know, what makes this project so interesting is that you are measuring health and quality of life. And, and from a macro perspective, you know, we have largely externalized that $4 trillion in healthcare that we talked about. And so what we haven't done is to assess if we were to improve, like you are doing, uh, the overall welfare uh, of society, what the net impact is going to be on the output, which again is, you know, health and quality of life. And so, you know, from an investment perspective, you know, th these things are 
kind of considered from a policy perspective in a very disconnected way. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that is where, that is why we ended up in this predicament right now, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think if we, if we assessed a lot of these major federal topics of interest from this more holistic standpoint, um, you know, we, we may come up with different determinations than we have in the past, because certainly the healthcare model has shifted towards keeping people out of hospitals. Um, so with that goes those delivery of services outside of the hospital, as well as all these factors that make or keep people healthy. Um, and if they're healthier, they live longer and they may be able to work longer. So, um, yeah, I think we have to, that's our hope for this project is that we can look at it a lot more holistically um, as we tackle the issues and really find out what those barriers are. Are the barriers within a county, are there issues with procurement, um, supply chain diversity that are holding back businesses? You know, there's quite a few cities around the country that when they took a look at their supplier diversity and procurement systems, um, minority-owned businesses were able to grow and gain more employees and pay them better. So it's, it's a very interconnected, um, complex set of topics, but by narrowing it down to two communities that have some investment going on, but many challenges, we're hoping we can unlock some of those models as to how you would think through the solutions. Yeah. Um, and, and the second aspect here is education. Um, and I want to I want to go into it. I want to also touch on you mentioned financial education, which is, I think, often overlooked, uh, which, you know, somebody with limited resources, there are so many financial products out there that is very confusing, credit cards being one of them. And if you get onto some of these financial products, it's like a black hole. You can never get out of it. Right. And mm-hmm. so, so does the financial education include those types of things. Oh, absolutely. Um, Education about what factors go into your credit score, how you clean up your credit score, how you address um, issues around heirs, property, you know, really a lot of the basic financial components that someone, you know, needs to be able to understand to to successfully navigate through this world. Um, So many times people feel like if I can't access these products in this traditional sense, well, I'll go online and they may end up in a situation where their uh, interest rate is changed um, often and and they're trapped in the situation. I I certainly talked to quite a few business owners uh, during the, the PPP program rollout who had gone to use online providers who then referred them to another online provider who referred them somewhere else. And they were caught in a tangle and not accessing the money that was there and available. So that basic financial acumen that we want our children to learn K through 12, I think we have to emphasize that for some of our adults as well, so that people can, can navigate financially and uh, know how to make decisions. Yeah. And, and you also mentioned vocational training. Um, you want to elaborate on that? Yes. So um, we are very fortunate in North Carolina. We have a very strong statewide uh, community college system. We have 58 community colleges um, that serve the 100 counties. 
And both of these counties um, in particular we're talking about have access to really outstanding community colleges. They work with employers on specialized training. They also uh, work with the general population on training that is um, correlated to the jobs that are most in demand. So um, one of the aspects we are looking at with both of these counties is what we call Encore um, yeah. employment. So people who come in that are older and what types of jobs are needed and how we could apply that investment to create jobs in that area. So workforce training is a, is a huge component of this. And I will say both counties have issues where they have formerly incarcerated populations hmm. and there's quite a few restrictions on those populations. So for example, you can't be a barber if you had a certain um, uh, arrest record or conviction record. Hmm. So there's quite a few things that um, we'd like to talk to our legislature about um, testing out the models on some of those barriers. Okay, okay. And so, so it's almost like uh, demand-driven education delivered through community colleges, right? So yes. rather than, you know, sort of taking the cookie cutter approach to education, you are saying, let's look at what is in, in demand and let's provide a platform um, where people could get that type of education so that they can get employed. Exactly. And then along with that, the critical skills training to adapt to whatever the next um, evolution of employment and the labor forces in, in the U.S. So just as we're still in the technological uh, revolution and we have machine learning, you know, make sure that people also have those skills that are interchangeable and adaptable. Right, right. And the third dimension here is food, um, healthy food and the absence of hunger among, uh, among um, at-risk vulnerable population. And uh, I don't know, you know, I think the, the, the people who suffer from uh, hunger in the country, I think is quite high, right? Do you have a statistic? Um, I don't have a statistic for um, off the top of my head around hunger. I know how many people are in poverty um, in the U.S. Um, and typically what goes along with that is is um, readily available nutritious food and access. So for example, we have 11.6 million children in the country um, who are in poverty. Mm. And, um, and usually what happens in these underserved communities is a lack of access. It's either a lack of transportation access to get to the food or just generally a lack of access um, to that healthy food. And in many places, these are agricultural areas yeah. um, that have some opportunity um, around food, but has that has not been connected to their economic development system in general. So there's an opportunity to connect the farmers um, in with that, with those needs, and then also agricultural related um, uh, products in that area. And, and there's definitely some federal tools that can be used uh, to drive that investment. Um, and so that's, that's an area I think of concern all across the country. Mm. So, the, so the intervention is like food banks and uh, farmers markets and things like that, or what are the specific interventions there? Well, the specific interventions, certainly in terms of just getting food to people, are food banks, yeah. but that's not necessarily a long-term sustainable solution. Right. So, um, uh, yeah, the solution would be more towards 
um, engaging the agricultural community um, as as small businesses. Uh, there's a tool available from the federal government called Rural Business Investment Companies that can make investments mm-hmm. um, in ag-related businesses. Um, so there's quite a few examples of how you could layer and and leverage some opportunity for the business side of it. And then uh, team that up with uh, the people in an area through a food hub as to how you market and use those foods. Um, And then there's some great examples of how community organizations have brought food into their community. Um, There is a community development corporation uh, in a community in North Carolina that bought uh, a building that had been a grocery store and worked with one of the food store chains to start with a small uh, store, mm-hmm. basically let them use it rent free and start with a small number of products and then gradually uh, build up to it. There's examples of counties that have done that as well. So it's figuring out how you can actually get the food in there and then how you might be able to create a food system within uh, the community that sustains across agriculture as well as the consumption. Right, right. And the fourth dimension is uh, healthcare. So access to high quality healthcare and well-trained providers. I think healthcare in general, uh, I believe one of the issues we have is we don't have sufficient focus on prevention, right? So we have right. a huge uh, you know, uh, manufacturer industry uh, that is largely focused on uh, treatment uh, once once somebody's diagnosed with with something, uh, and so both the tools as well as the focus is lacking in prevention. And I think this is this is probably quite valid uh, for this experiment as well, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because we have a challenge. So we have a challenge in North Carolina as in some other states where um, our state did not choose to take Medicaid expansion. So we have in North Carolina, half a million people that don't have access because we don't have that Medicaid expansion. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have that lack of access. Um, We have the cost and we talked about broadband earlier as being a component of that. And then we have a real challenge with our rural hospitals because of that lack of Medicaid expansion. We've had a number of rural hospitals that closed or rural hospitals that had specific types of facilities that they had to close. So in Eastern North Carolina, we had a facility that had to close its uh, birthing center. Mm. And now women have to travel more than 60 miles to another um, birthing center Mm. um, to to receive that type of care. So uh, telehealth helps, um, but we have to be able to have access for people to to get to some of those types of facilities. And that's been a real uh, challenge with the healthcare equation that we have on hand. Yeah, and the technology dimension, because you have to prop up the technology infrastructure for that to work as well. Correct, yes. And so the the fifth one here is uh, social integration and community engagement. And so... Again, you know, this is not something that gets a lot of focus on. And you can see in the data that uh, without, you know, this type of intervention, it's going to ultimately show up in, in healthcare. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Right, right. So that, that um, we talked earlier about isolation. Yeah. Um, so that the, really the fabric of the community, um, you know, whether it's access to voting, 
access to information, um, easily obtainable information, to what level is the community in, engaged in these forces or solutions that shape their future. So my colleague and I talk about collective ambition, which is, is everybody on board? Are they all on the bus? Are they all in a seat? And is the bus heading in the right direction? And it's everybody facing that direction. Um, so how do you build that, that social participation into the process? So you're not doing it to the community, but rather with the community. Right. right. And finally, the, finally, the physical environment, including safe and affordable housing and transportation, but also city planning, right? Green spaces and walkability and those types of things. Right, right. Especially for populations that have um, aging demographics. Are there sidewalks? Are there ways for them to maneuver as they age um, that adapt to that? You know, is the community safe? Um, is the housing of sound and in good shape? I mean, Robeson County has had major challenges with storm after storm and severe flooding. So I can sit here right now and tell you that there are people living in unsafe housing where they have mold issues yeah. um, that still have not been addressed. And then, yeah, just the whole concept, are, are there places for recreation? green spaces? Are there places that were um, previously environmental issues? Could they be converted to green spaces? All, all of those factors. A access to um, quality water um, is, is another big component. Yeah, so, um, you know, th this, this looks like a great experiment, Jeannie. I wondered, um, there should be comparable counties adjacent to these counties. So, uh, do you think we'll get some insights? I mean, you have a control group, so to speak, right? And you have some pre-treatment and post-treatment data coming out of these two counties. Do you think we'll get some insights as to what might work and what might not? Yes, absolutely. So um, we'll be putting out a paper that focuses on our first um, findings from the work this summer. <clears throat> and then we actually have a smaller group of interns that are narrowing down to work on a couple of key issues through this uh, fall semester. Yeah. Um, but we'll continue to update that data. And as I mentioned, we want to stay focused on these two particular counties for about three years to really achieve some uh, sustainable uh, system change, whether it's access to capital um, or a solution to housing issues. Um, however, we end up prior prioritizing with the communities um, and then and show that change and then be able to take this model and be able to replicate it. Because as I mentioned, just in North Carolina, we have 34 other counties that look just like this, some even a little bit worse. Um, so the goal would be, can we replicate it and can we replicate it more quickly as we go along? And, and uh, what is sort of the duration you're thinking about before we can actually see some results? Um, I think that um, we have a couple of priority areas that we want to work on in the fall um, that have some, you know, very specific outputs, um, one on housing and one around capital access. Yeah. Um, so I'm hopeful that by early next year, we will at least have a couple of um, uh, major changes in place in each in each place that will start producing some results. But I wouldn't expect us to see, you know, changes in that 
data immediately. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I want to close with, you know, the, you're doing such, such a great, uh, great work. Um, so you have a set of grant making priorities in the William Keenan uh, Charitable Trust. You want to talk about sort of the overall statistics um, of the trust and, you know, how you have been um, executing that? Um, well, the the trust, um, I certainly couldn't speak for the, the trust. They have uh, trustees and management. They've typically, um, and their annual reports available online, yeah. um, but they typically give to more than 250 recipients. Mm -hmm. um, and they have a focus area that covers New York, Kentucky, uh, North Carolina, and Florida. And um, I would point to some other great work that they've been doing in Louisville on the west side of Louisville in a community called Russell's Promise, um, which mirrors what we're doing in North Carolina, which is looking at system change. And they've made a large investment in Louisville and have been in that community um, for a while. So what I will say is we're, we're so thankful to have the Keenan Charitable Trust. And I know Louisville would say the same thing and that they're really thinking outside the box in terms of what can philanthropy do that really creates change and creates impact um, from that system level, as opposed to just uh, giving grants. And especially, you know, when you have something like a pandemic going on, you, you certainly need to be able to give grants to help organizations stay functional. And the, the Keenan Trust gives a lot to food banks, um, and other types of intermediaries um, that work on some of those issues. Um, but I think these are changes in the philanthropic community. And so they're really being leaders in our state and in a region for stepping out um, and looking at a different way that philanthropy can be a, a driver to leverage a private sector funding. Yeah, uh, I, I'm sure you're working on this. So the, the paper that might, uh, that might come out of this It'll be very interesting to see, you know, some sort of an economic analysis, right? So this much investment went into the system. This is going to be sort of the the, the net benefits, and that benefits is not a one-time benefit. It's a it's a you know long-term benefit, right? Accruing to it, and so mm -hmm. you know, sort of you know, what's the return on investment question? And I think you are in a good position to look at this. Uh, and I haven't seen this, uh, you know, at this level of detail, um, looking at all six aspects of of um, uh, or that those dimensions that we went through, uh, which is um, economic stability, education, food, healthy food, uh, high quality healthcare, social integration and physical environment. Uh, and sort of integrating all six of those components uh, and they have reinforcing effects, I would imagine, right? So we should see a, a really very high ROI for something like this, I would think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and then, and hopefully a roadmap yeah. um, for, uh, for how to go in and, and tackle those issues uh, to see that output. And I think, for me, because my interest is in sustainable finance, how can you take some dollars and then leverage other dollars in some of these solutions? Um, I think there's there's been some really interesting work across the country as to how you do that. And we have a new generation, not just of students who want to learn this in a holistic manner, but we have a new 
generation of investors coming along yes. and leaders uh, in the business community um, who are going to be interested in how to achieve that social impact. So I think that is a huge component of the model as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So this has been great, Jeannie. Uh, thanks so much uh, for spending time with me and uh, good luck with uh, everything that you're doing. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks.